All right, hello and welcome once again to Royal Grown Radio. You're all joining us kind of in a conversation rolling already. We're here sitting above the Applegate Valley, hosted by Jamin Gearsbach of Highly Elevated Distribution, Rogue Valley Growers, Rogue Growers, and so many other cannabis businesses and really an integral part of kind of the transition from, you know, traditional cultivation to this legalized industry as it passed through the medical world here in Oregon. We're very honored to be here with you, Jamin. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great to be on the show, guys. Um, Yeah, so my family and me, we moved out here about 15 years ago, um, actually from Brooklyn, New York, where we were, you know, pretty involved with the tech industry, but also involved a bit in cannabis. Um, You know, I've been involved in the industry going on probably 20 20 plus years, Um, been a grower, um, we were really excited to come out here and jump into the medical scene. You know, it was real different 15 years ago and uh, just got excited to be with a bunch of our fam and friends that we knew from like Phoenix uh, Organics and some of the guys down here that we kind of knew back in New York and grew up with who'd made kind of the leap before us. And uh, it's just a great community to be out in um, Southern Oregon, the Applegate, got a bunch of businesses, excited to kind of talk to everybody about what those are, get into some distribution and, um, you know, have the gang from Royal Gold here. You know, it's just been a really cool year. There's gonna be some um, stories to tell about like COVID and the fires and everything we've been through. And um, just excited to, to kind of introduce myself to everybody on the radio show. Wonderful. Well, I'm Michael Beck, this is Rick Elliott. Jamin, thanks for joining us. Yeah, guys, so uh, my, uh, my businesses are actually, uh, our first business we started was a grow store called Rogue Farmers. You know, it's been in business for a little over 10 years. And um, that little bit after that, we started to see the writing on the wall. They were gonna legalize, you know, Measure 91 was gonna pass, but it was gonna be a transition where in Oregon, we were a little bit weird. We never had dispensaries like California. You know, um, there were some outlaw dispensaries, but we never got the go ahead from the OHA, which was the Oregon Health Authority, to be able to open them up legally and transfer medical weed there. So that was kind of how we ended up transitioning to a full rec market where people that didn't have medical cards could actually come in and shop. And so um, my wife and me, were we take these you know spring break vacations with my daughter down in San Diego. We're on Mission Beach and the grocery store was running and we're like, Let's, let's open a dispensary. You know, it's something we've always wanted to do. We spent a lot of time in Amsterdam at their shops, at the little coffee houses. And so uh, we, did, we went back and we started the application process for opening up Talent Health Club, you know, THC for short. And of course it was in Talent, Oregon. And um, we were the second dispensary actually to open up in Southern Oregon. If you could, there was uh, Breeze Botanicals and then we opened, and I think about 10 days later, one of the other dispensaries opened up called Green Valley Wellness. We just got super lucky. Like we went into a town with a really liberal uh, council. The mayor was pretty conservative, Mike, at that time. And we went, we spoke in front of them. We pitched what we thought was gonna be a huge success for the town. They ended up saying, okay, you can open up three dispensaries and that's all we're ever gonna allow. So we, we ended up getting the city permit. In Oregon, they call it like a land use compatibility statement, a LUX for short which you can take and say, hey, I have the right now to open up this type of a business. And they, we managed to jump through all the hoops and opened up in 2014, one of the first dispensaries in Oregon. Um, it was just really cool to open up the doors for the first time. And right next door to our garden store where we had all these hydro customers and links with great farms and everybody was just excited to see what the possibilities were at that point. You know, it was like a new era. and. Uh, Man, such a transitional time and like coming out of the industry of like doing the hydroponic supplies. You've been doing that for a really long time. I was lucky enough to meet you early in my career at Royal Gold. My first true road trip out as a sales rep, I ended up sitting down with you and Aaron. Yeah, that was great. You know, right across from where years later I ended up marrying my wife and there in Lithia Park. And, you know, it's just like this series of synchronicities And I feel like that's really a lot about, it syncs up with what happened in the industry. So you're here, you're selling gear to grows, running kind of the underground grows. Like what did that transition look like from afar as you started to see it where you're like, oh wow, this might actually happen. Yeah, it was, 
it was not really apparent that it was going to go legal at that time because there was still a lot of animosity we felt from the community, from um, the city in Southern Oregon. And, you know, I mean, the bottom line is, is there was, Southern Oregon was really divided into like maybe three, to generalize maybe three groups of people. There was people that were, you know, real legit farmers, real country people had been here a long time. And there had been really, um, since even going back to the seventies, a significant cannabis community here. And they got along for the most part, you know, they kind of interacted because we were all so close together in these communities, but there was still a real cultural separation. And then there was kind of a third group of people that were kind of newer arrivers. They wanted to act kind of like the country people, but they weren't really country people. This kind of played around on their tractors and didn't really farm. And most of the, the tension, I think, honestly, came from those folks who wanted us out. A lot of them had real reli strong religious beliefs and um, saw us as sort of the antichrist in this area and were like trying to do us away. And it wasn't, um, what I found was actually going to Portland where there was just a lot more liberal people. There was a lot more open-mindedness and they were open to creating political organizations that were gonna try to push the legalization. And um, there were these two families down here. It was actually uh, Casey, you know, Phoenix Rising, and then Greg and Lauren, who I think you probably also know, um, out with uh, Mountain Sun Botanicals. And they're, they're in our area. And they said, hey, Jay, we're doing this cool, like political group up here with Amy Morgulis. It's called The Pack. It's a cannabis group trying to legalize weed. You want to be a part of it. It was kind of an invite-only group and um, with some of the people that had businesses and were kind of pretty involved. And I started doing like weekly road trips up to Portland, you know, trying to push for legalization and trying to work with um, these, these, a group of lawyers basically on how do we get legalized um, marijuana in Oregon. And things started to unfold. It was like two years probably in the works and it was, just a, it was just steps after another. And then I was like, this is gonna happen, you know, to answer your question. I feel like we're gonna pass this OHA thing. The shops are gonna open. They're gonna need to figure out the taxes. OLCC is like huge in Oregon and how much in, they're involved in liquor. And they were just dying to get into cannabis. They were like, this is something that we'd be really good at controlling. And we had a lot of like, we had a really amazing person, the OHA that got pushed out and just like when things seem like they're gonna go really good, you always inevitably end up having these huge pitfalls where you're like, oh my God, the whole thing almost got blown up. Where we lost like the head of the OHA in, in political turmoil, um, scandalous stuff. And the whole thing looked like all those years were just gonna fall apart. And then the OLCC managed to captivate kind of legislator Kate Brown, like the, the mayors, like everybody started getting on board with you know, Portland to actually legalize and give it to the OLCC. And at that point, it sort of seemed like we were back on track again. And then I want to say maybe nine months later, it was like legal. It was, it was that fast. It was like a freight train. It's fascinating to see the differences too between the, the southern part of the state and the yeah. northern part of the state, which is really common, I guess, with probably every state in the entire country mm -hmm. uh, and countries themselves. But, uh, you know, yeah. Portland being very liberal, it's also very focused on indoor cultivating. Right, and, and obviously the population of the state is up there as well. And then you look at Southern Oregon, and it's very much in so many regards tied into everything that Northern California has been bringing to the table when it comes to outdoor sun-grown cannabis. It's always been on the map. They've always done an amazing job. Some of these valleys here are some of the best in the world mm -hmm. as far as just you know, cultivating, especially this plant. It is. You know, we, we share a pretty similar ecosystem um, to what Northern California has. There's like obviously different microclimates. And, you know, I honestly think you guys do a little bit of a better job on like the cushions and the diesels just because they're a little longer. And we try to get in, kind of finish like in the middle of October, I think is kind of our sweet spot where you guys can definitely with the heat get a little longer and get those kind of maybe more nine week strains to like finish out That's properly. That's always the factor. That is definitely the key for everybody I know here. And, and what we've been doing down there is that that extra two weeks is is critical. Yeah. And so when we do a lot of breeding, um, you know, there's obviously a lot of pheno hunting involved with that. We'll try to find things that actually start flowering early and set up the structure right, because those are usually the ones that will nail that outdoor finish. But, you know, I've tried things like Platinum Girl Scout and Animal Cookies and some of those ones. And they're just kind of wanting to finish in early November and there's just a lot of PM and right. issues and that, that point. That's a hard fight. And <clears throat> I love that you said that about the structure. It's all about laying out that structure early and how they set. And you can tell in what late July to mid August, which ones you're like, uh Oh, this one's going to linger. I can tell it's like, 
you know, maybe the platforms are there, but it just hasn't kicked those true sets and puffs yet. And you're like, all right, this one's not making the cut for next year. And I see a big transition in Humble to more of those same genetics you guys are running up here because people are trying to cram one extra run in. Yeah. They want to do the light assist. They want to get that early depth run in. And we've got like a couple weeks on the front end of that season too. So we're able to usually get that one extra rip in some of those microclimates down in Humble if you're sticking to those early properly structured strains. So yeah. I, Especially I see the, recently. The recently. influence goes back and forth in such a positive way between Southern Oregon and kind of the Emerald Triangle. And I know a lot of people up here say it's the Emerald Triangle and people down there are like, no, we're the Emerald Triangle. But it's kind of like a pair of Emerald Triangles making one larger one. I think so too. You know, there's just so many similarities and crossover. I mean, even in the way we are right now, we're sitting about six miles from the California border. And there's a road that goes down to the Applegate and kind of, kind of the way you came up. And if you keep going down there, you're just gonna drive into California. And then, so I have friends that live down there and they interestingly enough have Oregon driver's licenses because there's no infrastructure there. For them to literally drive to like Redding, it's impossible, they need some insane four wheel drive vehicle if the mountain pass hadn't like washed out. Are you talking about the, is it the two, is it the continuation of the 238 that drops down Little to Applegate. 96 Little or something Applegate like that? Road. Because yeah. I remember it, you, you mentioned Casey uh, Branham from Phoenix Rising. And I went to visit him once years ago, and we thought following GPS, you know, you, you start to kind of feel pretty confident that they're not going to do you wrong. And man, you know, we, we got pretty far up before we realized, damn, we're turning around, and we just added about two hours to our trip because there's no way we were going to make it over that pass. We were moving boulders, we were moving trees out of the way, and then once we started seeing snow, we were like, this isn't happening. <laughs> and that's, the snow, yeah, the that's like the time. northern reaches of Siskiyou County right there, yes, right? Yes. Okay, yeah. so... Yeah, that's just literally some of the most rural, rugged, and remote country left in this yeah. continent. It's the I Marble mean, Mountain uh, Wilderness, basically, right? Isn't that kind of what ties into that? Multiple parts, yeah. Multiple yeah. wildernesses that just became one giant wilderness. Like um, the Red Buttes are all down south of here. That's our first range that we'll get into. There's also some really interesting geological things going on down there, like where they just, those were islands that basically just crashed into this continent millions and millions of years ago. And because of that, they have really strange mineral compositions. Like those, those mountains are full of nickel. So a lot of invasive plant species you see growing everywhere won't grow in those mountains. So there's a lot of really intact, wonderful endemic species down there that are still around because of these you know, big toxins, basically. That's amazing. I've never heard that. That's, yeah. that's incredible. And so um, it's just a really interesting area, but there's differences too, you know, um, and I wonder a little bit how this is going to play out with all the insane amount of outlaw growing that's going on right now. Um, and, you know, well, in NorCal, there's a lot of like little roads that go up and you're kind of, there's one way in and one way out a lot of times, but there, there's a real wide area. It's really spaced out. Things are pretty isolated and hard to get to. There's a lot of secrecy. Where here we've got these wide kind of open valleys. We tend to congregate kind of in groups where, you know, there's a small town, there's a small community, there's Williams, you know, and they're all kind of clustered together. And it's just going to be interesting, like, are we going to be able to hide out a little better from law enforcement and strengthen numbers? Or are we going to be more sitting ducks out here is sort of the phase 2-0 of enforcement comes out as they chased everybody out of NorCal up here. Yeah. So, um, and I mean, in 2018, things got pretty heavy down there. And what I understand, law enforcement really lost a year during COVID. Um, but this year, they're just going heavy. Every every day, I hear about another bust. So, Yeah, and where we're at, it all starts with abatement letters. So you can't hide no matter how remote you are. You're going to get that letter. They'll come and pin it to your gate. And they're saying, hey, we see you. This is what you need to come into compliance. Or you're paying by the day, buddy, up to $10,000 a day. And they're forcing... They're not coming in and raiding and putting all those resources out as much. There's still cases of that, but they're saying, hey, we see you, get in line. Either get in line or pay the cost, or then we're gonna come out and we're gonna you know, bust some heads, so to speak. So it's really interesting that you said that about how open the valleys are here and how tight it is. And I almost feel like I've never been into the Applegate before yesterday. We were blessed to come in and tour Phoenix Rising and see the sustainable agriculture there. And afterwards, he took us down to the Rooch Market, which was just an amazing community event that like gave us all the feels. We were oh, yeah. just so happy to see the community existing as it is. And like 
Everybody knew each other. There were great craft goods and hot sauces. And Kids playing, music in the air. It's like the weekly Oregon Country Fair. It was, it it was amazing. Yeah, we had a really successful barter fair that got shut down in the 90s, and it just kind of grew and grew into the point where it was turning into, like, you know, the country fair, barter fair, the rainbow, and it was huge, and people would be there for a week. The community managed to kind of shut it down. So this is actually feels a lot like it's starting again. You know? I remember the barter fair. I remember some of the folks that I lived with in the Siskiyous would come up for it. I never made it, but I did, did hear about it and heard it was pretty, pretty cool yeah, back then. It was then. literally right in that field right there. Wow. Yeah. It, it feels like that community, like the valleys, we're more, you're a little more open with each other here and yeah. you're guarded about outsiders, but open within the community. And it seems like some of the Southern Humboldt, rural Humboldt scenes were closed even to each other for the most part. You may have one or two neighbors you're friends with, but you kept it closed off. You didn't want to be associated because if if they hit Tom's place, you don't want them to come over here because yeah, yeah. there's a yeah. you know quad track between your properties and things like that. So much like the valleys being tighter and closed in Humboldt, I feel like the community was a little tighter and closed. And as an outsider, it was hard 20 years ago to come and kind of break into these communities. And seeing yeah, yeah. that down here, it just felt like it's a little bit of a different vibe. And you did everything you, you, you could to keep your neighbors away. You, you know, I mean, for years, you just tried your hardest to not know your neighbors on a personal level, mm -hmm. just out of fear of what that could wind up leading to. Don't even get me started on what it's like to date in, in, a, in a place like Humboldt, you know what I mean? Because you got to keep everything in your circle. And after you know, a couple of years of that, it's like, well, you got nowhere to go. I think we were like that too in the old days. Yeah. I remember, you know, just not, you know, not really being able to bring a new friend to a party or get together because the other people didn't know them and there might have been some issue in the past they didn't know about. And, yeah. Um, it's definitely gotten a lot more chill. And you know what is, is nice is like, for instance, below us. So this area, at one point, they were giving out 2,000 2, acre ranches to people that were just homesteaders. So the Mies own this whole area pretty much surrounding this community. Um, there are two, about maybe a little under 2,000 acres because they sold a little in the 70s to pay for tax stuff um, where they almost lost it. And they're super cool to everybody here. We all have a relationship with them. They like take care of the roads. We help each other out. We share food. We grow things together. You know, they do cattle and they're just great, you know, um, huge family, but multi, multi-generation, um, you know, grass grower, uh, they do cattle and they've been pretty conservative. And so the last couple of years, they've been actually sell, renting out their, their farm to do hemp below us. So they'll do about 80 to 120 acres of, you know, really high quality uh, smokable flower hemp below us in fields um, and have all the equipment and the layout. And so th th there's been a shift, you know, I think that's been kind of like, I joke a little bit, hemp's almost like the gateway drug for ranchers and stuff to be able to start <laughs> accepting us for once. But, That's the truth. You know, it's, <laughs> it's so it's, true. <laughs> um, it's kind of cool in a way, you know. And um, you were talking. We were talking a little bit about genetics, and I kind of wanted to circle a little bit back about that. Um, how some of the strains are kind of Jaeger and the Blue Dream and these classic sort of outdoor strains. But I think one of the things that's interesting right now is these early strains. You've you guys have probably heard about the earlies, where they're taking autoflower. You know, because autoflower bottom line, we've we've probably grown it. Most of the times, autoflowers are, are subpar. I just want to say it. They're they're good. They're okay. They're getting better. They're getting better. And there's a lot of great work that's come around compared to like when you know it was Neville and like they were doing ruderalis. I mean, the the petroleum coming out of Dynafem and all these things in Europe, much better. But what they're doing, I think, is cool. Is they're taking the autos and they're hitting regular T you know THC strains with it and making them go earlier. So I think I'm like excited to see where maybe some more of our designer strains will start pushing their way more into the sun, sun grown categories. Because um, I really think that the sun grown, when it's fresh, when it has all the mana in it, it's just, it's really hard to stack up against indoor. I think that in some ways it's better, um, maybe doesn't have quite the bag appeal. But I think as we start to perfect that and, you know, working with people like Phoenix Rising, you know, we did quite a bit of distribution with them in the early days. They are a fantastic farm and taking that shit to dispensaries, there's been a lot of times people did not know the difference whether it was indoor. And, and the thing is, is I say that like the proof's in the puffing. If they keep coming back to the Phoenix Rising strain and reordering it time and time again, I think it speaks a lot about the quality that they're putting out and how conscious it was and how small the carbon footprint on doing it that way. I mean, yeah, it the just makes sense, there. you know? 
the intent is totally there. And I, I'm glad you mentioned the distribution. We talked a little bit about that with Casey and being in California. Distribution is kind of a mess in a lot of ways. A lot of the farmers are just really hating how they have to interact with the distribution model. And we were talking to Casey a little bit about it and it's a lot more open and loose here in the distribution model and I really like that. And being a distributor, tell us a little bit about that. That's something we haven't talked about on Royal Grown Radio that's really just such a huge part. We talk about the cultivation, we talk about the community, but like how do we bring it to the people? How does it get from the grow store in a bottle of nutrients or a bag of fertilizer and some soil all the way into the consumer's hand in an effective way? Yeah, so um, just a little background on us is we started, we have two, we had two distro licenses. Our company name is Highly Distributed and um, we've, we've actually been doing it for about six years. So we've, we've seen a lot of sides of that market and how do we, you know, how things are cultivated and how they're brought to the people and dispensaries and kind of even have a couple of questions. So I think my understanding of how distro works in California is that they tax the distro companies as well and then is it mandatory that you have to run things through distro to be able to bring it to a dispensary Everything. yes wow okay so these are two huge things so i was actually part of the org so oregon was really cool in the way that the olcc invited people in the community who are involved in cannabis experts as they call them to become actually part of a committee to help write the rules um early on i was part of the the oregon they called the oregon rules advisory committee for cannabis and wholesale so i was on that committee and these were two things that I really, really was working on to change. I really wanted farms to be able to go direct. I felt like there just needed to be, it needed to be efficient. It lacked its efficiency because there was, I would say, you know, half the time it just makes the most sense to do it that way. Why put it through another farm? The other thing is, is brand continuity. Like how is a farm really going to shine, really represent their brand if they're showing up in a turkey bag or even a gusseted branded pound bag and then they're having a middleman really move it to the shop? So, Along with 30 other products or 100 other products. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. So we really kind of pushed back. We wanted there to be a direct in Oregon. And we also thought that the tax should really only exist in one place. Let's keep it simple. We know that retail is generally where tax is collected. And it's just a lot easier to audit. You know, if everything's in metric, every sale's tracked, you look and look at it and see who's paying tax or not. So I think that was a huge benefit of what we did in Oregon for setting us up for success. Because without having a a real good logistics platform to get the products out with because the tax just starts eat i was thinking the other day that even in oregon the government's probably taking a, the majority of the money because they're tax they're taxing us for the license they're taxing us to produce it they're taxing the people to buy it and by the end of that and then the cities will take a five percent or three percent so at the end of that, it's like literally probably around 60% of it's going to the government already. And the more you push up the prices, the more you're just saying to the black market, hey, you guys are, are still the ones selling the weed to everybody because of the prices. They're forcing the relevancy of the black or traditional market because of this you know, overwhelming cash grab. And that's a big part of what we see in California too. And I think there was an advantage in Oregon of maybe the market being developed a little less and a few less voices and a little bit less of the big ag trying to push some of this to help gain control and that's what we saw in california is big ag behind the scenes really you know whispering in the ears dropping those lobbying dollars being like no this is what we want to see let's get this written in a way that's effective but then the laws eventually fell back to the state legislature to change without any voter input or referendum. So everybody thought, oh, hey, we're voting for this thing, but they were basically voting to say, hey, state of California, set this up however you want, regardless of what it says now, you can do whatever you want now. Once, once you get that stamp and signed on the dotted line, big ag can kind of have their way. And we've really seen it. The laws changed very quickly. There was supposed to be like a five-year period where people couldn't stack and have giant canopies. and that disappeared within months and so weeks in some cases they were really they had no shame in going right out there and attacking the hell out of it and a lot of that was actually came out of norcal you know and and the groups that were really representing craft cannabis and that's too bad that was one of the things that we'd won on in california and then immediately lost as they sort of turned that around and even with the latest legislation didn't newsom just give out a hundred million 
to the fix cannabis? He did, and that's you know very fresh, so I, I'm not familiar exactly with what's going on on that. There's a lot of question marks of what that meant. I don't, I don't know that anybody has a super clear picture yet, but. Well, I think that they're going away with you know the, the BCC, the Bureau of Cannabis uh, Control, and they're setting up three bureaus now to kind of run together and checks and balances sort of a system. I've heard the pros and cons, you know, it's yet to, yet to be seen really how it's really going to roll out and what people really think about it. But um, And the trouble with money, too, is it's just kind of is easily given away. And if somebody has the lobbying power, they're going to get the money. Yeah. And where maybe just going in and fixing the regs might have just been a, created a little bit more of a level playing field for everyone. Sure. Um, yeah. So we'll see. I think the big problem is just the so many of the, of the levels of taxation that are occurring. Completely agree. You know, it hits the grower. And in California, if you have a permit for a certain amount of square feet, you're paying for those square footage on the tax, whether mm -hmm. you cultivate it or not, mm -hmm. no matter what. So people are like, feel forced to go bigger and to fill it out and to build in ways that aren't effective and to do things that aren't really what you want to do. Cause like, man, I'm paying for this. There's nothing I can do. And I'm going to have to pay the bill, so I better get something on those extra square footage. And I, I just think it's a kind of backwards attempt, and it gets just hit again at every level, like you're saying, all the way down to the retail. And the consumer is footing all of that cost. Yeah, and let's just face it. I mean, taxes are hard for weed people. I mean, it's not just the 280E picture. It's just complicated. I mean, try running an accounting system that doesn't, like QuickBooks Online, you'll get it shut down. And jumping through those hoops and doing it on every step of the journey um, I think it just it just seems inefficient. The other thing I've noticed about California is they require prepacking. I think of of bud, which we don't in Oregon. You can basically the shops prepack. I actually my dispensary was weird. You know, so basically most dispensaries in Oregon are deli style, where there's just big jars and they pick it out and do it right in front. Which I of you. love. Yeah, and people love that. I was interesting. I, I was a prepack house where I just did prepack, and the reason I did it is I just wanted to get people in and out quick. So it was just express checkout. Um, that was the main reason. Um, but you know, it, it's got its pros and cons. I think the cool thing about prepack is that the brands do have that continuity where they're able to label all the way from growing it to the, the customer. But it, it, in a lot of ways, I think it, it takes away our, you know, the shop's deli style, which people like, they want to have that interaction. They want to spend the time with the bud tender, you know, and, and have that kind of care that goes into it. I would love to see a hybrid system too, where it's like, yeah, here, check out the jar. If you want to buy a couple grams, you can pull it deli style. Yeah. There's prepacked eighths and quarters here. Exactly. There's a slight discount because it's prepacked, it's ready. Or, you know, I know it's more expensive to package, so it goes backwards. And that's, you know. Well, for the convenience, you know, and for those times when you're going to, you know, walk in and get a pre made sandwich from the deli because you're on the run and late for work, or you want to actually have them make it fresh with a couple of ingredients that might not have been on their pre-made. You know, so to actually have that that opportunity, you know, to go walk in there and actually have the experience. If you did give yourself an hour to really go and dig into a new dispensary because you're traveling and really see what they have to offer and, and, and enjoy your conversation with somebody who's as uh, you know, passionate about cannabis as you are, that's a cool experience. And it's so much a, a part of the cannabis experience as a whole. So to have that option is huge. Yeah, and to also have the option, like we're out here on the road for work, I can maybe after we're done with the workday afford to go and do that and spend that time and connect, but traveling with my family, you know, they're grabbing a milkshake somewhere and I need to be in and out of that dispensary and back in the car. Right. So, you know, it, I really see the need for both avenues. Yeah, and it would be great to have that hybrid store, I think, where you had it kind of all available. Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting where in Oregon, we never actually passed a, a consumption rule where there's no public consumption still. And I'm starting to see like new states popping off like New York and Las Vegas actually just pop, pass public consumption. New York saying they're going to go right to public consumption yeah. dispensaries. And I'm starting to wonder, because you brought up the point earlier just about how the laws had been written, they're complicated, and they're kind of starting, I don't know, I, I'm starting to feel like the laws in Oregon are starting to feel outdated. And the, the reason I'm saying that is I'm starting to feel like there's a cannabis brain drain going on where I keep hearing really skilled cannabis people wanting to leave and go to these new states where there's better opportunities. Less Look regulation. At, less regulation is really the big one. You know, in Oklahoma, unlimited canopy, $50. You can sell seeds online in most states. Just it's really time for us to start catching up on the West Coast 
because we still have the infrastructure, we still have the people, but if we don't start maybe getting a little bit more liberal and, and revamping some of these laws and starting to become pioneers again, we're going to get left behind and we're going to lose the, our, the, the smartest people in the industry. Absolutely. So, so true. I mean, to be the first is something, but then you're also the oldest and the dinosaur and we're, mm -hmm. you know, you look at Washington, you look at Colorado, these, the true first states, and there are huge parts of those regulations that I do feel are obsolete. And I was just out in Oklahoma a couple weeks ago. It has the vibrancy of the original medical scenes in California and Oregon, where it was like going on and not being super enforced, but enforced a little bit. But you know, they were busting one in a hundred people, even on their best day. So there was vibrancy and there was enthusiasm and there was hope. People saw a future for themselves. And, you know, as a cultivator for 25 years, I look at the hurdles in California and I'm like, do I really, I would like to do this, but do I really want to deal with all these headaches that I'm seeing my friends pull out their hair? They're not cultivating. They're pulling out their hair in front of a computer and paperwork. Like we need to work better to readjust these laws, to be more modern, to recognize the current state of cannabis because it is different than when these laws were written. It's true. And one of the things I've been really excited about that hasn't manifested yet, but it's been on our radar is the multi-state commerce piece. You know, about three years, we started talking about a, a partnership between Washington, Nevada, California, and Oregon because we're all legal and we're all interconnected. We don't even have to really cross another state where there's risk. And right. but there's fundamental challenges with that too. Like, look at like how is the money going to flow? You know, right now in Oregon, we have bank just like there's so there's banks that will bank with us, but are they multi-branch? Are they multi-state? No. How is that going to trans? And then, are, so are we now hauling a hundred thousand dollars back between Las Vegas and here? It just doesn't make sense. And I'm, I'm kind of surprised that we really haven't jumped on crypto as much in our industry. I mean, in a lot of ways, we're really the perfect industry for it. We're pushed out by the banks. Everything needs to be tracked, right? Where you know where the money flow in the, the way the blockchain works in crypto is that you can see every transaction that has happened with that wallet or with that coin or for his entire life for it's very similar to metric and i think that the other thing we the issue i have as a distributor a lot of times is i have to get people to front me stuff i have to say hey give me your your product i'll i'll pay you in 30 days i mean how does that make the the producer feel like there's real risk for them involved with that what if i'm some shady actor so I thought that like with these tokens that are out there now and their ability to do lending, their ability to do escrow, they have the, the tokenization that's starting to get built into them to where, I mean, the bottom line is that the money doesn't really leave cannabis as much as you think it does. There's a little that goes to taxes and rent and power and things, but it really just goes around in a big circle. So why aren't the distributors working with creating a platform that we can kind of keep our own money, keep control of our own money. I think it'd be really a valuable thing for us to do. So um, I've, I've just been kind of looking into what those possibilities are and whether we can take something kind of off the shelf. I haven't found it yet, but maybe we could take something that's pretty close to that, modify it slightly and create kind of a, a legitimate cannabis coin that's not going to end up being like a pump and dump because it would really set us up for success when we start going interstate. I think that's brilliant. I know my mind just exploded in your kitchen. I mean, I've been learning so much about crypto and still barely know anything about crypto to the point where I still can't invest because I just tangibly can't see what I'm buying. I'm still like dealing with that issue. But everything you just said makes so much damn sense. It's crazy. And imagine like if we could actually start being treated like regular farmers then where we could kind of get a little bit of insurance when we had a crop failure. I mean, that's kind of how ag is run in America is you have, you know, these, they're like the CME is the big one, but they're basically, they're exchanges where you put money in and you short like, you know, corn or whatever it is. But if the corn falls, you know, you basically, you get paid whether you're successful or you fail to some degree. And I think we could really use that because there's just been too many times where we've seen cannabis companies go bust after one season because of a bad harvest or a, 
you know, a theft or any number of pitfalls that can happen and there's no way to really insure ourselves. Like I just had my dispensary burned down. We lost all the product. We lost all the cash, you know, huge, huge loss. And the insurance company just battled us the whole time, you know, and it, I, I kind of feel like at the end, we finally got paid a little bit, nothing like compared to what we lost because the guy just felt so bad that they were berating us for not having an al a fire alarm when the whole community, the whole town burned down. Like what would a fire alarm have done? It was just a loophole they had. Wow. It was just a way to try and protect yeah. themselves from having to pay out a legitimate claim. Yeah. And so um, how legit are these insurance companies really? Like what's their accountability? Are they just selling us snake oil and then when we go to collect, are we really going to get anything? Yeah. And with all of the money that cannabis as an industry is paying in in taxes, like so extreme, yeah. the disparity between traditional ag and what cannabis is doing and look at the subsidy dollars are going from the government into all of these other agricultural products. They are subsidizing and protecting every other significant agricultural product where all of a sudden the largest cash crop in the country and soon to be the world is, you know, these walls continue to crumble around us and there is no consideration for that disparity. Like the government needs to get on board and start looking at how to make this a legitimate national agricultural product and start to push these borders out of the way so that they can take a piece too. Because the federal government should have some piece, but they need to regulate how the states are taxing it and bring it into line. So like, yeah, no, you guys are taxing way too hard. We need to bring this down. And part of that's coming to Uncle Sam. Mm -hmm. And let's create a level platform so we can sell West Coast herb across the country and I'll be honest Oklahoma weed was fantastic when I was there I was super duper impressed I would love to be able to go in and be like oh my dispensary here in California I'd love to try what's happening in Oklahoma with this farm or what's coming on in Nevada over here and Michigan has amazing cannabis too I would love that opportunity as a consumer so yeah, that cherry bomb you just took out of the package yesterday just <laughs> blew me away. I was yeah, really, that, really impressed. That's Papa Jesus Farms out of Oklahoma, and they're Hell doing yeah. just great work. They've got good genetics. They're passionate. And really, again, it comes back to that intent. They're wanting to bring the best to the world, and, and it shows. And you just really summed up what I've always felt distribution was. It was getting things that weren't in that area to a place where they should be, really. It's arbitrage. It's bring, you know, it's just get, finding something that's up in Portland that people really want down south and bringing it down south or getting a great sun-grown farm and bringing it up north and spreading it out so people can see and experience different things that aren't available to them in their community. And that's capitalism they, yeah, it uh, is. at its best, you know, for some reason, you know, it's the one part of capitalism that they're just not uh, allowing us to partake in. Yeah, like I'm a hot sauce freak. I, I get, <laughs> you know, hot sauce from Belize and I get aardvark out of Portland, but yet I support my local Wichipec hot sauce people too because I want to try it all, but that's, that's commerce. Like, let's look at it from the big picture. Yeah, so, you know, we're talking about all the regulation and all of the kind of disparities here. Oregon is emerging as kind of a superpower for quality cannabis. Like, you guys are small. There's only, what, 4 million people in the entire yeah, state. So, true. like, you look at the comparison to California, and we just have so much of a louder voice. But Southern Oregon cannabis is next level. I mean, some of the stuff coming out of Portland and indoor is next level. Where do you see the line of kind of a stabilization of the industry prior to knocking down these walls in national? Uh, it's, it's a great question. I think that, you know, Oregon, Oregon has had a huge challenge because we, we've come up a lot. There was a reputation that Oregon had great craft cannabis. And then when legalization happened, we had a lot of people come in from out of state. A lot of stuff was dumped out of state um, that was of mixed quality. And it, it's been a, a huge reset across the cannabis market. And I think it started somewhere around, you know, maybe two years ago where a lot of people left, a lot of the stronger people sort of expanded. There's been some consolidation. And I think like some of the best farms in Oregon are doing a lot of hybridization where they've taken pieces of different systems and brought them together where they're, they're doing weird things like, you know, running super sophisticated controls and information about when there's problems. So they get alerts if the CO2 is out, if there's a lighting problem, heat. So they have like eyes into everything that's going on in the facility 
working with world-class genetics, but then doing things like more of an old world style where they're, they're taking like living soils and no-till and organics and bringing that in for the flavor and quality and pushing it to where it looks like hydro weed. And that's what I find is really incredible. And then being open about sharing that information. You know, there'll be farms out here that I visit that won't even use Clonex. They'll use willow bark, you know, and take it kind of extreme. But those are experiments that have started to pan out now, two years later. And we're seeing a level of cannabis quality through the breeding, through using hybrid technologies that, have, that are sort of coming out of multiple industries. Um, and, and it's just taken it up to a, such a higher level now in Oregon. It's exciting. I really think it's going to continue to evolve. I love how that scalability, as people hit bigger and bigger and bigger, they started to notice these things a little more. I've been cloning and growing for 25 plus years. And when you're buying one tiny little jar of Rutec, you don't think about the chemicals and hormones so much. But when you're like, I'm doing 50,000 plants and I'm cutting clones all day, every day. And I've got people like dealing with these chemicals. It really starts to like paint a clearer picture that, hey, this isn't why I wanted to do this. I wanted to steer away from these pieces. And you see the willow bark and new innovative naturopathic type of approaches really changing it. And I love that you talked about how open people are about sharing it. That was our experience with Casey at Phoenix Rising yesterday as he was not only open, but eager. Mm -hmm. It's like, shout it from the mountaintop, brother. Like, this is how we're doing it. We're doing it better. Like, you can learn this too, just take baby steps and you know, you can grow better cannabis in a better way. Yeah, and it's cool. Um, I'm seeing a, like stuff being done with fermented plant extracts and you wanna talk about a more sustainable approach to, to gardening. I mean, it's like, you're not even using trucking now to get your organics. You're literally gathering it in your community, in your area down by the creek, you know, and fermenting these things on your own. So that's really exciting that people are starting to do more of that type of work. And there's probably about four or five farms in Oregon that are rec that are doing fermented extracts. Um, I thought Phoenix Rising was doing a little bit of that. Yeah, they are. Which we were learning about yesterday also. Yeah. yeah. Hyper local. I think, I think agriculture is really cool in a way that there's been an evolution. And it started a little bit on the industrial side, even with the ability to start creating products that were biology-based. So we're seeing products that are like bacterias and different things that didn't exist. It's almost like agricultural 3.0 because we had organics. Then we started doing synthetics like NPK stuff. And now we're doing things working with microbes to actually make those things like that much better. And I think that um, that's really cool to see young people now who are urban, who maybe never had any sort of experience farming before, being excited about weed, coming here, getting into agriculture and being able to grow things. I mean, I think it's really going to set us up for a survive, you know, survivability, the ability to be independent, create these communities, and the, the farmers' markets are a great place you can see all of that in display. We say it all the time that this plant's going to change the world, and in so many ways, we get to see it every day. That it's it's doing it in a different way than what we originally or, or you know every day kind of uh, think about it. Where it's really in the cultivation, we see it from our perspective of going to trade shows in the hydroponic and supply business where, you know, the mycorrhizae, you know, just learning about biology in the soil and regenerative farming and, and these things that big ag, I mean, you change the way big ag operates and you're yeah. really doing a significant service for the, for the life of the planet. Right? And Hell so yeah. much of that is coming from cannabis. And a lot of it is obviously when you, when you have the, the economy behind a plant like cannabis, you know, then you have this, this new uh, boom to develop all these new technologies and ideas. But uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty amazing to see how much, you know, we're responsible for how ag is, is being changed. Yeah, it's like we're, we have a really high dollar crop, so we get to go and run off and experiment and play and learn things that we can now take back to ag because they couldn't do it. They're just on such a tight margin sure. on everything. And I think one of the really most amazing kind of unexpected byproducts ties back to what you were saying, Jamin, and ties back to the fires that ravaged this community is that cannabis is affecting community resiliency by teaching these pieces of regenerative ag water sink let's hold the water let's use the hugel culture let's find other ways to be resilient in our food production in our community networks just knowing your neighbor so that when it's coming up you can actually run next door and be like 
Billy, we got to go get in the car. And like, it tightens the community. It does. And it tightens the awareness of how to live within the environment in a more effective way. And it is changing the world. And I, it's subtle ways that you don't always attribute to the cannabis plant, but you really see across the nation really affecting communities. Yeah, and one of the things I'm almost wondering that could help facilitate that connection and, and community is the water. I mean, we're all suffering now a lot from these droughts. And I've seen more people sharing information of like, hey, what water truck service is good? Or, hey, can we fill up our water truck with you and ag? And how do we do this legit? And just trying to figure out ways to work with our limited resources. Because there's water here. It's just not where you need it. And it just needs to be moved to there to these farms in a lot of cases. We're pretty lucky. We've actually just had a, a series of three good days of rain up here. I don't know that it's gonna get us out of the situation we're in, but it's gonna definitely make it help. It's gonna help a lot. And, you know, earlier we were talking a little bit about, um, you know, just how some sometimes the government organizations are a little bit unwilling to help us. And we feel sometimes like we're giving money away and we're not getting things in return. But in Oregon, there's actually a really cool group of people called the Oregon Energy Trust. And I think that a lot of growers in Oregon should know about these guys because they'll actually, and there's consultants you can work with because it's complicated, but I've seen a few farms go from high pressure sodium lighting to LED lighting and getting significant compensation for their farm in terms of dollars back. Oregon's doing a really big push to make things more green and, and less carbon intensive on the growing side. And they're giving away dollars and people are converting and it's just really magic to see. And I think it's going to start motivating people to really look at how we kind of treat the planet and carbon. Because, you know, that's what I love about cannabis in general is just how it's really come from medical. And medical is about sharing. There's just such a different way of looking at the world. It wasn't capitalism. And I think that's starting to leak into the corporations that we influence that are starting to get into our, in, our industry. They're starting to look at how we act. They, wanna, they don't want to infiltrate. They want to fit in. So they're kind of starting to act a lot more ethical in our industry because of that. So maybe there can be a real shakeup in terms of the economy and some of the shitty corporations that are out there as they start getting involved with us in some of our ethics. They'll start to see maybe there's a better way of doing things. Yeah. And... I would love to see that start to affect water consumption and storage and distribution because that it it's antiquated the way we're dealing with it and the way that big ag uses water and moves water and water rights it's an antiquated system and it does not make sense with the current water crises that are only going to get worse not better until we rectify these things so it is it's like a corporate reckoning with humanity in a way. I think mm -hmm. that's another really way cool that the plant uh, you know, heals all, you know. It's not only just teaching the farmers how to do it more, uh, you know, ethically and ecologically sound, but you know, changing the consciousness and, and compassion of people, even on the corporate level. <laughs> we'll see if that happens. But, but yeah, I, I, there, it's, I've always just thought, you know, oh, cannabis is going to, you know, it's going to save the planet. And it just means that, you know, everyone's just going to be sitting around eating organic food and <laughs> smoking weed and, and meditating on a, on a carpet under some trees somewhere. But there's so many different ways where it's, it's infiltrating so many different ways of life on the planet, you know, that I think uh, I love enjoying, you know, picking those parts out and, and, and seeing how it's actually affecting it on a day to day and over 10 years and 20 years. And that's kind of one of the cool things I think about having the different licenses in the state too and um, how we kind of do distribution is our model for distribution isn't like, let's just buy, buy from somebody and then sell it for a little markup. It's like, how do we go and get involved with them on the genetics? How do we help them grow a better product on their farm? How do we get involved in the branding process to like get them to really reflect who they are and, and bring that to the shop? So when the end customer gets the product, they can... They can, because I, I started to notice my shopping habits have changed. Like I started to go originally and look for the stupid shit that people looked for. Like what's the THC numbers? What's the strain? You know, hey, who's got the Donnie Burger around town? And I started to realize that it was a lot of times the cultivators that I was after. It was the certain farms, like almost anything they produced I was really into. They, they kind of had a similar palette that I had maybe, or the way they grew it, the flavors, or the, it just connected with me. So... I started to realize that that brand continuity, what was so important, and is we as our distribution company carry a lot of products, you know, every, edibles, vape pens, they're all very well branded, but how do you brand the flower? How do you bring that out? And I thought, 
getting them involved, like creating strains with them so that they could have their own strain. Um, that was a cross of different things that they could kind of only, they were the only ones that had or using some, you know, different, a different approach to nutrient design and things like that. It really started to tell the whole story. And I think that having the story behind the farms and the brands was what created that continuity to the customer. And um, I think is, you know, our dispensary doesn't exist anymore. It got burned down, but I think is, if I'm going to rebuild it, what I'd like to do is maybe give a little bit of space to the farm and let them do their own creative kind of curation of their, of their little space that they had at the dispensary versus being, you know, like, we'll buy your stuff and we'll set it all up of like, okay, you know, here, let's put down like a cool picture of your farm and let's put, you know, your flower here. And then let's work with this cool processor, like happy cabbage and make an extract from your flower. And then we're going to have that with the vape. And then maybe even we'll sell some of the seeds that you produced of that cool strain that you've been breeding. Yeah. So there's just, you know, it, it starts to tell a whole story because these people are, their families and a lot of them have really interesting stories. And, and no better person to tell that story than the people that lived it, which is, you know, yeah. why we're so thankful to be here hearing the story from you. I think like a Meet the Farmer Fridays or something like that is a lot of what, you know, at Royal Gold through the soil side, we're doing like Royal Gold Days where we'll go set up at a hydro store for four to six hours and we'll meet customers and we can kind of get in front of it. But it's not like this huge vendor day where 20 brands are all elbowing each other to try and catch the same customers that come through that day. That's not what we want to be about. We're not trying to fight for business, but we want to tell our story and allow people to make their choices based on who they resonate with and how they feel about what they want to see their cannabis produced, how they want to see their soil produced. It's, it's about giving the people that voice again to tighten the community i think i i love that concept of a specific farmer focus for a moment to let them tell that story you know it's 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 interesting the dis like looking at the businesses and how the other businesses have helped each other the dis the distro sort of always kind of sat in the middle but i feel like the farm store you know rogue farmers has really helped kind of is, is almost like a funnel and a knowledge piece and an ability to like help elevate Southern Oregon cannabis with better, you know, better quality products, better growing techniques, being able to provide seeds and genetics from the distribution company. But I feel like it's funny. I think having the dispensary is where I've learned the most because getting kind of being able to see all the brands, having them a lot, you know, I don't even, I wouldn't even have interaction with so many of these brands if I didn't have a dispensary where they were selling to. And then getting to find what the, like the customers really want and where trends are and where changes are happening. It's just kind of a really great window into the world and um, just a, an amazing experience um, working. And, and I think like if anybody is an owner of a dispensary, like spend some time with the bud tenders, like get on the store floor, like talk to the customers. And it's just a really, it's really eye-opening um, and a really great opportunity to do some education. I say the same thing for, for the farmers themselves too, the dispensaries that your, your product's being uh, sold and represented through. Yeah. You know, making that point to go out there and actually chat with the bud tenders. I know it's not always easy. It's an extra step of their job that's already filled with all kinds of other stuff that they'd probably rather not do. Yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, you know, the, those those folks, that's that's the direct contact to your end user, you know, and giving them your backstory and your vibes and, and mm -hmm. all that stuff. And that stuff carries a lo long way with every product that's being sold. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Jamin. I want to introduce you to Royal Grown Radio. I'm from Rogue Farmers, Talent Health Club, Highly Distributed, and Essence Farm in the Applegate, Southern Oregon.